Thank you. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 20 and verse 41. If you have been with us, uh, you know we're on a journey here leading up to Resurrection Day Sunday. Uh, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 20. We're going to finish out chapter 20, verses 41 through 47. Karen and I were introduced to Fa Nguyen about, and I think I pronounced his name well, about 25 years ago, and we were introduced to Mr. Nguyen through his son, Coy, who was a friend of ours. Um, Mr. Nguyen was a native of South Vietnam, and he worked in Farmville as an accountant. Maybe some of you remember him. He was an accomplished person. Um, it was amazing that he could make his way to the United States. He had a number of children who followed him to the U.S. who were very successful. Uh, some were attorneys, and, and he had multiple children. Others were doctors, I think a couple of them. Uh, one of them was an accountant, as he was. But Mr. Wynn lived in a very humble setting. He and his son, Coy, lived right off Wilkes Lake, and they lived in a single-wide trailer. And it's amazing that a man so accomplished lived here in such a, a simple way. One of my favorite memories, and Karen would remember this, is a number of years ago we visited with Mr. Wynn and his son, uh, and we had dinner in their home. And while we were there, uh, Mr. Wynn's son, Coy, wanted to give us a multicultural experience. So we ate seaweed soup, which was a staple there in South Vietnam. And while we did that, we were listening to a CD of Boxcar Willie. That's a true story. We had South Vietnam and I guess the United States covered in that. I was thinking about that this week. That's probably the only time in the history of this nation somebody was eating seaweed soup and listening to Boxcar Willie at the same time. I was saddened, though, back a couple of months ago, Mr. Wynn passed away. It's been over a decade, I guess, that he and Coy moved to Northern Virginia as Mr. Wynn became older to be taken care of by one of his other children, and we received news about that. But Mr. Wynn, he lived an amazing life. Before locating to the United States, he actually served as a diplomat for South Vietnam in the Philippines. And you understand what I'm saying about a diplomat. He actually was a distinguished individual representing his country to another country. And so as people saw them, dignitaries there in the Philippines or even the average person, they looked at him as really a representative of his homeland. And you know, today we're going to look at some scribes and some religious leaders. And, and you would think that they would represent God. But in reality, they didn't know God. And so they were not able to represent him. You know, it's understood that an ambassador, and we as believers are called ambassadors of Christ, would know the one whom we represent. And so today, with that in mind, I want you to look with me at Luke chapter 20. And I want to begin reading 
in verse 41. It said, Then he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can the Christ be his son? While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word today, we... um, Pray that we would gain a greater appreciation for who you are. And as we just heard in music, you're a God of grace. But Father, for us to be instruments of your grace to others, we need to ourselves have personally experienced that and to know who you are in your fullness. We may not be able to understand intellectually everything, but in the eyes of faith, we can know who you are. And Lord, then our responsibility as your representatives, as your ambassadors in this world, may we be a reflection of you to others. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to thank Kemper for filling in uh, for me last week. You may not realize that, but it was just a little over 24 hours before he had to preach, and I appreciate the fact that he sort of kept with our theme of this last week of Jesus' life leading up to Resurrection Sunday. Today, we pick up on this journey that we've been on, and there's something that's very interesting here. There's sort of a change from what we've seen in the previous verses to which we have looked, that now, instead of fielding questions, Jesus is offering a question. Instead of Jesus, in a sense, we might say, being on the defense, we see that he he goes on the offense and begins to teach a very important truth about himself. He's referencing a verse here from Psalm uh, chapter 110, and he interprets this verse to show his listeners and us that he, Jesus, is truly God. You know, that verse may have escaped the awareness of some of those who were listening that day may have escaped the awareness of us. It's Psalm 110.1. But Jesus, it did not escape him. And so he begins to address uh, the issue of the scribes and the leaders of his day. And it's very evident that they were not accurately depicting God. They were speaking on behalf of God, but they did not know the God of whom they were speaking. If they had known, they would not have challenged him time and time again, as we've seen over the past few weeks. I want to look this morning at what Jesus says about himself, who he is. And and we're going to see that we understand who God is through the written word of God. The spirit of God takes the written word of God and reveals to us the truth of God. And, And once we see the deity of Jesus, once we know who we're serving, then we begin to understand how we are to serve him. And we're going to see today that really we're to be the exact opposite of the attitude and the actions of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Well, first this morning, we're going to see who Jesus is. 
In another gospel, Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, Jesus asks a very pointed and relevant question of his disciples. He said, who do people say that I am? You may remember that the disciples said, uh, some said uh, one of the prophets or Jeremiah or John the Baptist. But then Jesus stopped and he pointed that question directly to them as individuals. Who do you say uh, that I am? It is only through God's word and through the spirit of God taking the word of God that we can know who Jesus is. You see, the source the Spirit uses to reveal the truth of God is the very Word of God. And so as Jesus is talking to the crowds, and, and as the people were listening, we see in verse 45, Jesus takes them to the Word of God to express who He is. And Jesus, very clearly, is the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Jesus is God the Son. In verses 42 and 43, uh, Jesus basically expositorily is teaching them through questions from the Word of God. He's taking them to the Word of God and he's saying, think about this, draw out from it what God would have you to draw. And so he said, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, because David was writing that particular verse in Psalm 110, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so what he is saying there, this is a messianic prophecy about Jesus. And what he is saying is that he is beginning that process of the fulfillment of this that was spoken by David around some 1,000 years earlier. And because Jesus was preparing to die, he was going to be raised from the dead, and that was setting in the process of all of the enemies that will one day be Jesus' footstool. You know, as we think about the deity of Christ... I'll be the first to say the Trinity is not easily understood nor explained. It doesn't mean that we can't try to understand it, this concept, but we really can't grasp it to its fullness. I've said before, the Creator is not subject to the laws of creation. So many times as we try to define God and God in His mercy reveals who He is to us, we struggle because we try to define the creator in terms of the creation, and that can't happen. Think, think of it this way. Think even within creation, and, and we would first have to agree the chasm or the distance between the creator and the highest of creation is far more vast than the distinction between the higher parts of creation and the lower parts of creation. Much as heaven is far greater from where we are now than, say, California would be. Well, think about the lower aspects of creation. Think about cats for a moment. Cats are lower order than mankind. Cats can do what? They can lick their wounds, but they can't build hospitals. If a cat could build a hospital, I wouldn't want to go in there. But stop and think about that. That may sound like a silly illustration. A cat can lick its wounds, 
but it can't build a hospital. If we see a hospital, what do we say? That's beyond a cat. We look to the higher part of creation. Yeah, we look at Jesus being fully God and fully man and say, well, it can't be that. We have no problem of the distinction between the highest part and the lowest part of creation, but when it comes to trying to rationalize or explain too many times, we try to explain God from our terminology in reference to us. Regarding the deity of Jesus, Jesus asserts his deity here. He says David calls him Lord. And he says, how can Christ be a son if he is Lord? Again, there's a thousand-year difference there. David had lived some thousand years before Jesus. And so Jesus is saying that he's asserting his preexistence because David was calling him Lord way before Jesus was physically born on this earth. But he's not just saying that he existed in David's day, but he is saying that he is greater than David. David was considered the greatest of all of the kings. He was one after God's own heart, selected by God in a significant way when Saul did not fulfill God's purposes for the kingship. And so we see here that David was an exalted king, yet Jesus is saying, he called me Lord. But not only that, David was Jesus' predecessor physically. He lived on this earth. So often what would the people do, uh, uh, the Jewish people in that day, they would go back to Abraham as the authority because he was the predecessor. He was the one who was in the higher position. Common logic would tell us David was greater than Jesus, but not so because Jesus is fully God and fully man. Here in the context of all of these challenges we've been looking at each week, it was really disrespectful of these scribes to treat God in the flesh in such a way. They kept challenging Jesus. They kept trapping Jesus or trying to trap him. They couldn't. And so we see that Jesus, fully God and fully man in his incarnation, and where does Jesus take us? He takes us to David. And so we see uh, that he uses David as a point of reference both to assert his humanity and his deity. In his humanity, Isaiah 11.1 1 speaks again a messianic prophecy of the branch of David. I looked out my window today and there was a branch coming from the tree that's probably going to fall, hopefully not on my car. We don't park it there. But the branch is an extension from Yet in Revelation 5, 5, it is said that Jesus is the root of David. And so in one part of the scripture, it says he's the branch of David. He issues forth from David. In another part of the scripture, it says he's the root of David. That's telling us that he is both man and God. And we say that can't be. But what are we doing? We're trying to place God in a box. We're trying to define him, the creator, in terms of of the creation. Is it hard to understand? Yes, especially if we base from the lower to the higher our criteria. It's hard to understand, but is it hard to believe? No, it's not, because God is faithful to his word. I want to take a quick whirlwind tour. As if this weren't enough, and it is enough to assert the deity of Christ, I want to look at five other things, and there are many more if we had more time that we can assert that Jesus truly is God in the flesh. 
Isaiah 45, 23, God the Father speaks through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, by my name, by myself, I have sworn and confessed. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says the same of the Son. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Actually, it speaks uh, in the Old Testament before God how every knee would bow and swear. And so swear and confess have to do with the same thing. And so the same thing God the Father says of himself, Jesus, uh, is spoken of in Philippians. Thomas, we looked at Thomas in our Sunday school lesson today. He's often known as Doubting Thomas. And, and you remember what happened the first time after the resurrection when the disciples, the ten, obviously minus Judas, they were also minus Thomas. He was not there. And as they told them that they had seen the resurrected Jesus, Thomas says, I will not not believe. Now in English, a double negative turns it around to a positive, but in the Greek language, a double negative is used for emphasis. He's saying, I will never believe unless I touch his scars and see him. And then when Jesus appeared the next time of the public gathering, Thomas saw him. Jesus offered his hands. What did Thomas say by looking at him? He said, my Lord and my God, Thomas knew as God. Paul in Colossians 2 and verse 9 says that in Christ the fullness dwell of God dwells in bodily form. Jesus in John 8, 58, when he was talking to the people of his day, said before Abraham was, I am. He was not only saying that he predated Abraham, but he used the very term when Moses asked God the Father, whom shall I say has sent me? God said, I am has sent me. And so Jesus was asserting his deity. And then maybe the greatest chapter in the Bible to understand the deity of Jesus Christ in Hebrews 1. We see in verse 3 and verse 6 and verse 8 of Hebrews 1, it says in verse 3, Jesus is the exact expression of the Father's nature. In verse 6, it says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, any worship other than the true God would be false worship. And so that tells us that Jesus is the true God. And then it tells us in verse 8, it's spoken to the Son, that is Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever. The Lord Jesus Christ is God. The religious leaders, as we've seen for weeks in our study, were disrespecting God in the flesh. And as Eric preached the Sunday that he was there in that parable, they were even preparing to hand him over to death. They were working against God. They were not good diplomats. They were not good ambassadors. They were false. And so the question is, in light of the truth that Jesus is God, how are we to respond to him? How are we to do so? We need to be sure that we don't misrepresent him. Have you ever been misrepresented by someone? I have. Someone may take my words and portray them as something they were not intended. Sometimes I've had a person say, I'm sure Rick would say this if he were here. I wouldn't have said that. You know, maybe you've been the same with somebody will assume they know you. That was the case of the religious leaders as we see today in regard to God. They thought they represented God. They thought what they did 
was approved by God, and Jesus said they weren't representing him in any way whatsoever. They were off point. And so today, I want to look as we close these last three verses at how we are to be representatives, how we're to be ambassadors for Christ. And we're basically going to have to turn 180 degrees, the exact opposite direction of what we see depicted of the religious leaders in these three verses. First, when we serve God, we're to serve for his praise. We're to serve for the praise of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 46. While all the people were listening, verse 45, he said to his disciples, in other words, he was speaking to the group, but he was speaking loud enough that the crowds could hear. He said, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces. Notice their attire. They would wear long robes. These long robes were robes of distinction. The common laborer would not have such cumbersome garment because they could not do physical labor. The, it, it wasn't that they didn't do physical labor. It's that they thought that their dress portrayed them as being important. They were not concerned about the Lord and their work. They were concerned about their status before people. They wanted to be seen by people as important. And so you say, well, how does that apply to me, Pastor? Well, everything that we do, we need to deflect any praise and point to the Lord. These people, they were serving solely to build up themselves. They desired the applause of people. Uh, during this past week, and, and just appreciate the opportunity to be with Karen's parents, but one of the blessings was, uh, I believe, Tuesday afternoon, our oldest son, Wilson, and daughter-in-law, Brittany, came. It was okay to see them. We really wanted to see Karis. That's our granddaughter. We have one granddaughter. And, and you know where I'm going with this. A lot of times whenever kids show up, especially at that age, the parents and the grandparents want to show them off. Maybe they've learned to say, put a sentence together or do something. And, and you probably can picture it. Here's the child, and we say, okay, Karis, I want you to walk over there and do this. And then everybody's applauding, and you know what she does. She starts to look, and then what does she do? Walk right into a wall or something. That can happen in our lives when we're so focused on the applause and the approval of people. It can be destructive. That was the case with the scribes. They loved the greetings in the marketplaces. They loved to be important. Hi, how are you? Good to see you. They move on, smile, self-important. They loved the best seats in the synagogue. When they arrived to the synagogue, not only would they have immediately gone there, but they expected that if anyone were in that seat, I'm so important, that person will get up and move. They loved the places of honor at celebrations at banquets. It was all about them. They were serving, and I put quotes around that God, but in reality, they were serving themselves. If we're to be adequate representatives of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we need to be focused on the needs of others and the glory of him. But I want you to see, secondly, we're to serve from the heart, not just externally. 
we can go through the motions, can't we? We know all the lingo. We know all the acts. And, and the scribes here, they knew all the religious acts, but their service was a superficial service. They didn't care about God or others. In Matthew 23, we see the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of that day denounced. And we don't have an, uh, the time today to go through all of them, but I would encourage you to look over Matthew 23 uh, more exhaustively than we will today. But in verse 25 and 26, uh, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. They were blind. They were focused on the external, and they were spiritually blind as to what matters uh, really. Yeah, I was talking with a friend uh, this past week. His name is Steve Morgan, and actually my father-in-law helped him begin a ministry. But Steve is totally blind. He's been blind for about, he's probably about my age, has been uh, physically blind for like five or ten years at least probably 10 years and we were talking before the funeral and Steve's one of those guys that always encourages me and he said this he said Rick there are a lot of people that can see that can't see and there are a lot of people who are blind who can see and isn't that true what was happening these people they may have phys could physically see but they were blind spiritually they thought that they were pleasing to God but they were totally missing it. There's a 20-letter word in the English language that denotes really the, if we want to call service, I'll put quotes around it, of the scribes of that day. It is a word called compartmentalization. In other words, they could turn it on and turn it off. Their, their ministry was not an outflow of the Lord working through their lives. It was performance-oriented. It was not issuing from the heart. It was based on external approval. And that's not the way someone would represent God. But I want you to see a third way. Unlike the Pharisees, we're to serve to build up others. Notice what it says in verse 47. These religious leaders, they devour widows' houses. What does that mean? Well, they didn't literally eat those houses physically, like to satiate their hunger. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is they were taking advantage of the widows who were among the most poor. I can't help but think of the people that have made hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars on television, and, and these poor people just sitting and putting money out. That's not the way Christ would have it to be. The problem with these individuals, these religious leaders in that day, they were takers, not givers. They were taking even from the most humble of society rather than serving it. In verse 47, it said, they say long prayers just for show. They were ostentatious. We've already seen that. But they were not only that, they were totally self-serving. In fact, God's word teaches in Jude 12, 
not only is this not the way of true teachers and representatives of God, but it is actually the true way of the devil. In Jude 12, as Jude warns about false teachers, he says they are shepherds who look out only for themselves. But in contrast, as followers of Jesus, you and I are to serve others not to take from them. We're to build others up, not build ourselves up. We're uh, not to worry about our reputation, our wallet. We're to serve from the heart, and we're to serve for the well-being of others. I wonder today, are you living an others-oriented life? Are Are you awakening in the morning and saying, God, how can I serve someone for your glory this day? As we close this morning, Because we serve a holy God manifested to us through God the Son, Jesus Christ. How are we to serve? How are we to represent him? Well, we've seen for the praise of God, not of men. From the heart, not just externally. To build others up, not ourselves. But I want to look at one other thing. We see that the close of this chapter in this text, because of the conduct of these religious leaders who were not representing God but representing their own agenda, Jesus said they will receive a more harsh judgment. The harshest judgment, the scripture teaches, is not for what we would consider the most vile person on the earth. The harshest judgment would be for those who try to use the name of God for their own glory. Who, who should know God and should be held to greater account and are because they don't live for God. So how are we to serve God? How can we bring it home simply? You say, well, Rick, uh, I understand that. I totally abhor what these scribes and religious leaders were do, doing. I understand who Jesus is. But practically, how do I live out being a representative of Christ in my life? I want to share, last week I was reading a a devotional book, and my father, as many of you know, passed away uh, about six years ago, and and, uh, he left me a devotional book. And it was by a guy named T. Austin Sparks. And I'll be honest, each year I get a new devotional book. I go through it. And that thing was always on the back burner until this year. I picked it up January 1, and I said, I want to go through it. It's open windows, but not like the open windows, I believe, that's put out by the United Methodist Church. But it's just a number of excerpts from this gentleman, T. Austin Sparks. And every devotion is based on something he wrote in a previous work. But I read a quote from T. Austin Sparks that really put reality to what it means to minister, to to be a true representative of Christ. And he defined ministry as this. It is the outworking of the indwelling Christ. You, You see what that's saying? The outworking of the indwelling Christ. It's not that we put on a show. It's not that we, in our own strength, go out and do it. It is merely our yielding of ourselves to what Christ is doing in and through our lives. Would that be your prayer tomorrow, today, next week, and the year ahead? Lord, I want the indwelling Christ to outwork through me.
Let's pray. Father, we serve a great God. You know that because you are our great God. Father, you are different from us, more different than the lowest of part of creation to the highest part of creation. You are far more great. Your ways are above our ways. But Father, you loved us enough to reveal yourself to us. And as we have sung and heard sung today, that's an act of your grace to us. Father, it's our desire that we be inadequate, accurate representatives of you in our service to others. And Father, very simply put, that happens when we allow the indwelling Christ to work out from us. Father, forgive us for the times when we go through the motions. Forgive us for the times when we serve ourselves, Lord, in your name. Forgive us for the times when we may use others, Lord, to, to place a feather in our cap. But Lord, we thank you that whenever we come to your word and we engage in the study of it, that you can change us. So Lord, as we go through this week, make that our theme that we, as we minister to others, would merely allow the indwelling Christ who compels us to work out in ministry to others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a time now of invitation.